Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Imagine that you wake up one day to discover that the police have a warrant for your arrest, charging you with a murder that you know you didn't commit. And later you find out that a friend of yours confessed to those police that the two of you committed the murder together. You would obviously be confused and even betrayed. And then you find out that you're about to stand trial for this murder because your friend blacked out that night and doesn't actually remember what happened. And he was convinced by detectives that together, you and your buddy killed a man. That is exactly what happened to Ryan Ferguson. Ryan spent nearly 10 years in prison for a murder that he didn't commit, before finally being exonerated after his co-defendant, Charles Erickson, recanted his testimony. This story is full of bizarre twists and turns. While Ferguson has been set free, his friend and co-defendant, Charles, remains behind bars even to this day. The breakdown is complicated. And here with me today to help sort it all out is the host of the incredible new podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, Maggie Freeland. Her deep dive into this case has put the focus on the miscarriage of justice that continues to capture the freedom of Charles, even as we speak. This is Season 9, Episode 7. Not really about Ryan Ferguson, but the case of Charles Erickson. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maggie, how are you? Hey, Bob, I am great. How are you? Good, good. I, you know, I just listened to a few episodes of your new podcast, and I first want to say it is fantastically done. And real quickly, before we get into who you are, I'm just, I'm just curious, how much time did you put into creating Unjust and Unsolved? I know I interviewed with you for the Jamie Snow case. I don't remember when it was. It was a while back, but you guys clearly put a lot of time and energy into creating an amazing podcast. Thank you. Well, we, we, you know, we conceived the idea back in probably last October. So Patrick and I were just celebrating our one year conception date. But I think, you know, I actively started working on it back in February to kind of get the first couple episodes in the can. So 
it's been a while that I've been working on it. And I will say that the first cases definitely had a lot more time and energy put in because I had the time, you know, back in February, March. And now it's it's a lot. So those those episodes definitely had a lot of attention to them. Isn't it amazing how quickly before we started recording, I was just t- telling you about how we had we had worked to get ahead for Mike's wedding yeah. and all those things that came up. It's like you feel so good because you're you're ahead and, and you've got all this time and how quickly in podcasting that time just goes away. It's incredible. I was like, wow, I'm seven episodes ahead and now I'm working, you know, two weeks ahead. It's I'm like, I'm struggling right now. It's crazy. Yeah. And you'll be right back to white knuckling it here in about three weeks uh-huh. working on the episode for the week <laughs> you're doing it. Exactly. So, so Maggie, before we get into the case we're going to discuss today, can you t- talk to our listeners about, you know, who you are, your background? I mean, you, you, you've got a very, your professional career is pretty diverse. It's, from what I know about it, a lot of it revolves around media, but, but podcasting mm-hmm. is relatively new for you. So, so where did you start and how did you get here? Yeah. So, so I've been a journalist for a very long time, my whole life. I knew that was something that I wanted to do was go into journalism. So, you know, right at 18, 17, 18, when I did my undergrad, I was studying journalism. Um, That was my career path. But then I, you know, saw the media landscape shifting a lot, you know, around 2011, when podcasting really started taking off. So I went back to school to do radio broadcasting. I did my master's in radio broadcasting, and I wound up working in public radio. So I was at WMYC, the New York local station. I was at WHYY, the Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia station. And then I wound up working on a national NPR show called Latino USA. And that's where I was for the past five years. And there I did a lot of immigration reporting. I spent a lot of time reporting on detention centers you know, workers' movements, things like that. You were on the uh, the Missing More Murray show on Oxygen. Yeah. So so that, you're right. So, you know, I, I forget my, it is so crazy, the path. So I'm working at NPR's Latino USA. You know, I'm working detention center reporting and I get a call out of nowhere like, hey, you're a journalist who went to UMass. We have this missing persons case. Do you want to be the lead journalist on it? Of course, I knew the case and I was like, this is so bizarre. You're calling me. But they really specifically were looking for a female journalist who had gone to UMass. And as I mentioned, I did mm-hmm. study journalism in UMass. So so, yeah, I wound up working on the missing Maura Murray case. And that really, you know, got my interest peaked in following more true crime, you know, reporting. I wound up I have I actually have Another podcast series, a seven-part series coming out on PRX about, you know, the criminal justice system and juvenile lifers. And so I got really into that, you know, criminal justice reporting, true crime reporting after the Moore Murray case. And because of this uh, juvenile lifer podcast I have coming out in around January, February, I got into wrongful convictions. You know, I, I've followed this man for three years after he was released from prison, thinking he was going to die there. And he was not wrongfully convicted. He has admitted to the murder that was committed. And, you know, I've really just started thinking about the humanity of all people who are incarcerated. And, you know, here is this person I've become so close with who, you know, has admitted to committing a murder, has become an upstanding citizen, was released from prison. And I thought, you know, how many people are in there who don't even belong there and are, 
you know, amazing people who need to be on the outside as well. That's awesome. The, the the work and the motivation you do is is incredible. I followed some of your work for for quite a while. And a little preview for all of you listeners: next week's guest is going to be the Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed, talking about uh, a case that that he is very interested in. But how did you end up hooking up with Patrick and creating a podcast through the the, the is it called the Obsessed Network? Yes, yes, the Obsessed Network. So. That is because Patrick was literally obsessed with me. <laughs> he saw the Maura Murray documentary and he he will confirm this. He saw the Maura Murray documentary. He covered it on his podcast and someone had sent me a clip of this, you know, screeching man obsessing over my hair. And I was like, who is this person? Like, w- this is so funny to me. But I was also like, who is this weirdo? And so we wound up getting connected. We actually wound up meeting at CrimeCon. I'm pretty sure it was the New Orleans CrimeCon. And it was, you know, it was magic ever since. We both live in New York City. We got dinner one night and he was like, hey, I want to branch out um, from, you know, just doing one podcast. I want to start a network. Will you be on my network? And that was last October. That's awesome. I'm surprised that he was able to peel you away from the captain at CrimeCon, who always introduces <laughs> you to me as his wife every time I see him. Yes, yes, that's true. We do have a true crime um, marriage, so that's me and Captain. <laughs> yeah. No, Patrick did. Patrick peeled me away. You know, me and Art Roderick were together when we met him, and it was it was so much fun. I'm so grateful to Patrick for, you know, having the confidence in me to put, you know, me on his network as his first podcast that he is not a part of. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And you're doing a, a fantastic job. And I know he's told me that he's just thrilled with with how well the podcast is going. And and I can totally see, you know, you know, I, I, I became a little obsessed with you after watching the Mormur documentary because because <laughs> but it was because of the tattoos. You gotta talk to me about the tattoos, because I myself am covered in tattoos. And you were just telling <laughs> no. me that you had a real problem when you were filming your TV show, which I went through a similar experience. And uh-huh. that you said you had a bunch of tattoo appointments that you couldn't get done throughout the shooting. And to talk about your what are your tattoos? And why wouldn't they let you get any more while you were shooting the show? I know. You know, we were just talking continuity. You know, they they piece things together, you know, in different, you know, you might shoot an opening scene at the very end when you finally get the interview you need to talk to. So you just always have to look the same. So I've really, you know, for that extended almost two year period of time, couldn't change anything about my appearance. At all. And I, I enjoy doing that. You know, it's part of who I am. I like changing the way I look. So, yeah, I had to had to cancel all those appointments and reschedule. I don't even think I rescheduled half of them at this point. But, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting because I'm just a very determined, headstrong person. And when someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to do it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a very small person. I'm only five foot one. And, you know, when I was starting, you know, picking up a musical instrument, you know, in school, they have you pick up an instrument and you're either in band or orchestra. Well, they told me I could only play, you know, the violin because I was small. So, of course, I played the stand up bass. You know, that's how I am. Um, So (laughs) I thought you were going to say the tuba. No, (laughs) which would be awesome. No, I played the stand up bass. But, you know, in grad school, when I was in my mid 20s, they you know, one of the career services people looked at me and and gave me the nastiest hand gesture and said, 
you're going to fix this, right? Pointing to my entire appearance and said, you're (laughs) never going to get a career looking like this. Right. So I just love, you know, where I am and and I, you know, you could do whatever you want as long as you're just smart, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like, be a good person and, and work hard, you know, and I think I've, I've, my tattoos, whatever, you know, I get nasty comments from some dumb asses, but who cares? Right. You know, and, and times are changing so much. I was thinking when you said that Oxygen was specifically looking for a female journalist from UMass, and I, w- I was thinking too, you know, it was about that time that it was also okay to have a professional journalist on TV that has a bunch of tattoos. I mean, that was that that wasn't a big thing prior to that. There was a certain yeah look you had to have because I I kind of experienced that too at the beginning of my podcasting career. You know, there was I I did a little bit of TV stuff here and there, but I I heard that a lot. Like, well, you got your your arms are covered in tattoos. We had to mm-hmm. put you in sleeves and this and that. And then you know, last year I. You know, I was on 2020, which was like is like the like typical. This is what you know a journalist looks like, and so it, it was cool to see you. And that's part of why you know it was like I said I was kind of obsessed with you. I'm like, this is awesome. Here's this 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 brilliant journalist, and she looks like me. She, I mean, not exactly. I mean, you're not quite as handsome as I am, but you know, pretty close. <laughs> Bob, we look identical. People can't tell us apart it when we're at CrimeCon together. You know, <laughs> You know, at the last crime con, the captain was introducing me as his wife because he thought that I was that I was exactly. I know that that was an interesting mistake when he was telling everyone that you were pregnant with his child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wasn't going to share that with people. But he did tell me that you were that you were you were pregnant with uh, Captain and Maggie Child during the crime. It may have been over. Yeah, we thought it would be funny to start like a scandalous, like true crime baby rumor. And uh, it definitely took off at Crime Con for a bit. Like people really did think I was having Captain's baby. You know, I think we need some true crime babies in this world. Right. Well, he definitely sold it well (laughs) from the excitement that that was coming out of him as he was explaining it. Oh, crime con. What a, what a time. Right. Now, so, all right, last personal question. We're going to get right at, get into the case. What was your first tattoo and what is your favorite tattoo? Oh, boy. Okay, so my first one was my foot. Well, my first legal one, I'll say, was my foot. I definitely got a few in St. Mark's in New York City when I was probably 16, 17. But my first legal one at 18 was my foot. It's a blue rose, which now, Lord, it's so faded. I can't even tell you. It's probably like a green rose now. Right. I guess my favorite are probably, you know, the ones on my hands. I have some pretty cool chains and spiders and webs and stuff. So I think those are my favorite. I I want hand tattoos so bad. And I've actually got so so one of our co-hosts, Zach Weaver, is my tattoo artist. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how we got to be friends is from him doing all my tattoos. And I have I have an appointment in two weeks to go in to, to get some work done. And every time I'm like, I want to get a hand tattoo. And then I chicken out every time that I'm, I'm I, I still have that in me that I can I'll never be able to work if I have tattoos on my hands. But I think you've proven that that's not true. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think I think if I could do it, you can do it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So now we're going to get into the case uh, that we're going to be discussing today. And the episode is titled The Case of Ryan Ferguson. Everybody knows, well, most people in the true crime space know a little bit about Ryan Ferguson and his case and his wrongful conviction and his exoneration. But you took a very interesting approach on Unjust and Unsolved, and you did an episode about the, air quotes, Ryan Ferguson case, but not about Ryan Ferguson. Your episode was about Charles Erickson, a person who a lot of people don't realize was Ryan Ferguson's co-defendant, who is still in prison. We're going to get into Charles's case and where we're going from there, but can you kind of give us the beats of the the Ferguson-Erickson case like what happened as far as the crime and the you know the investigation the trials leading up to ryan's exoneration yep so cliff notes the top notes of this this is you know great for this time of year it happened halloween night 2001 and the sports editor for the columbia tribune this is in columbia missouri he was leaving work his office building Around 2.10 a.m., he's heading to his car in the parking lot, and he is brutally beaten, murdered. He's bludgeoned. He's strangled by his own belt. It was a nightmare. And so his body is found next to his car by one of the janitors around 2.20 a.m. So the two janitors had said that they saw two people fleeing the scene, and, and you can actually hear these 911 calls. Of, of both of them saying, you know, we saw two people. So fast forward a little bit at this time, Charles Erickson, he's a 17-year-old junior in high school. Him and Ryan Ferguson are friends. They go to a Halloween party that night. And pretty much it's a typical high school Halloween party. I mean, I'm going to admit I partied a lot. I, you know, I think that's part of it. I identified with Charles and Ryan a lot. They went to a Halloween party. They get wildly drunk. There's some drugs involved. You know, they go out to a party. They go to a club. And according to Ryan, they wind up home. But according to the police, that's not really, you know, how their night went. They are picked up and questioned for this murder. When were they when were they picked up? That wasn't that wasn't clear. Was it was it like right after? How did they originally become suspects? Right. So this is how they become suspects. The case goes cold. Kent Heitholt's murder goes cold. A couple of years later, on the anniversary, a anniversary article is put out in the Columbia Tribune saying, you know, this is still an unsolved murder. They put out a sketch of what these two janitors saw. One of the people that they saw, they put out sketches. So Charles Erickson, Ryan's friend who was with him that night, he sees this. He sees this article and he starts thinking like, hold on, this sketch kind of looks like me. I blacked out Halloween night. Did we have something to do with this? I don't know where I was. You know, I don't really know what happened. It was Halloween night. I blacked out. Now this guy's murdered pretty close to the club that we were at. So Charles starts obsessing over this 
And he starts telling people, you know, Ryan and I might have had something to do with this. And so one of these people goes to Crime Stoppers. And that is how Ryan and Charles get picked up. Um, the police picked them up because Charles had been saying, you know, I don't remember this night. I don't remember this night. And they're questioned. And the interrogation is probably one of the wildest I have ever seen. But uh, we could get to that. But so Charles actually confesses to the murder at this point in the interrogation, testifies against Ryan, and uh, they're both convicted. And they, were, they weren't convicted until 2005, right? It was like five years or four years later. Yeah. So I think so. Yeah, the article came out, I think, three years later, 2002 or 2003. And then, yeah, then the trial, they're convicted in 2005. Right. And then 10 years passes. And then there was, and I'm not sure the, the, the chronology of this, I'm sure you know, but the, there was a documentary called Dream Killer uh, that came out mm-hmm. about this case. Mm-hmm. Which, which we're going to get into in a minute, the interrogation and why it's called Dream Killer. Is that what inspired Kathleen Zellner to get involved or had she already been involved prior to the documentary? Zellner, I believe, was already involved before the documentary because she Dream Killer, I think, came out in around 2016. And Zellner was already involved by 2009 because that is when she got Charlie's Charles's deposition where he actually recanted and said that um, he was forced to lie by the police and Ryan actually had nothing to do with this. Right. And, and so and that leads to and my audience is very familiar with Kathleen Zellner. She's actually working on the Sandy Melgar case, one of our, our season six case, right, as we speak. Mm-hmm. But that leads to Ryan getting his conviction overturned. Mm-hmm. And so he spent about 10 years in prison. He gets out. And just living life now, he actually sits on the board of the Innocence Project, and all as well seems like a happy ending. But Charles Erickson, now almost what, 19 years after the offense, almost to the day, is still sitting in prison for this crime, which is crazy because the, the state's theory of the crime is that Ryan and Charles committed the crime together. And then they said, oh, and then they let Ryan go and Charles is still in prison. Why is Charles still in prison? So in the 2009 Zellner deposition where Charles Charles finds out that Ryan has Kathleen Zellner as a lawyer. And at this point, Charles is starting to realize, you know, the police coerced him. He's starting to realize, like, I, I don't know what happened. And we could get back to all of this because I think, you know, one of the things that really drew me to this, too, is I always heard, you know, this crazy guy, this crazy guy that lied and put Ryan in prison and poor Ryan, this guy lied for like lied and getting to know Charles. That's that's not what happened. So Charles finds out that Kathleen's his lawyer and he writes to her and says, I have something to say. So she she sits down with Charles and says, what do you have to say? And he says, well, I lied. Ryan had nothing to do with this, but I still did. So even in 2009, Charles is now saying Ryan had nothing to do with it, but he still believes that he did have something to do with this. And believed is the key word there. And that's what I think we should jump back to prior to the arrest. Mm-hmm. Be- because you know, one thing, if I'm, if I'm not blending cases together, I believe that didn't Charles have some sort of mental illness or it was an OCD, you know, obsessive yeah. compulsive disorder. Mm hmm. Which I can relate. I'm actually die. I have I have OCD myself, and and I remember when I was when I was listening to your podcast and some of the interviews with Ryan or with Charles, 
Like I can completely relate to the fact that once he saw the photo that he thought maybe looked like him and he couldn't remember what happened that night, he obsessed over it over and over Mm -hmm. and over and he couldn't let it go, which is the same brand, the same flavor of OCD that I have, where it's not that, you know, I have to, I don't have to lock doors three times when I walk out of it. I just obsess over things and can't let them go. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly. He he was obsessing over this. He saw this sketch. He didn't remember what happened. He did. He even went to Ryan at one point and said, hey, man, did we have anything to do with this? And Ryan was like, what are you even talking about? Because, of course, they didn't. So Ryan was like, stop saying that. We had nothing to do with this. So when Charles is confessing, the police are feeding him this information. You know, the belt that was never reported on the fact that Kent Heitholt was strangled with his own belt. That was that kind of information that the police should have kept to themselves until they had a real suspect who could say, yes, I did this with a belt. And then they know, boom, we got him. They fed that to Charles. They fed that to Charles. And Charles is telling me, you know, when I say to him, look, everyone thinks you're crazy. Everyone thinks you're this bad guy for putting Ryan away. He says, no, no, no. I thought we did this. I thought I was doing the right thing. The police are telling me we did this. The police are showing him falsified police reports saying that they did this from witnesses. I only mentioned the one Dallas one. There's two others, two other, quote, witnesses. One is a a jailhouse informant, which I know you love. Mm -hmm. One is a jailhouse informant saying, you know, Ryan Ferguson told me we did this. The police show this to Charles. So Charles is like, you know what? Ryan's not going to own up to it. I will. We did this. We did this. I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. And, you know, Ryan's not going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing. So he's got the OCD. He's trying to be a good person. It just all was the worst combination for a wrongful conviction. So, so the, to set the scene, you have, you know, a, a teenager at the time of the crime, 17 years old, who's drunk and high on whatever he's whatever drugs and alcohol he's he's intaking that night. Blacks out, doesn't remember the night. Then he sees the photo or the, the, the sketch and he's like, oh, that kind of looks like me. He starts obsessing over it, starts talking about it. That leads to him getting brought into the police station. And if, if you hear the entire interrogation, it's like you said, it's mind blowing because he's saying, I don't know. I'm not telling you that we did this. I have no idea. But, but I feel like we might have because I was blacked out and I don't remember things. Mm-hmm. And then you listen to the police. Just walk him right into a confession. And there's even a part mm-hmm. in, in the interrogation where, they, where they're trying to get the belt piece out of him, right? Oh, was he, stra- mm-hmm. was he strangled? Was he use anything? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And a little while later, they're like, so was it you or Ryan that strangled him with the belt? And he's shocked when he hears about the belt. He says, the, the man's belt? I don't know anything about a belt. And that's the key piece of information and charles has no idea about this right yeah he's he's completely clueless and 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 so it's essentially it starts out with him i could have done this because i kind of looked like that picture and i don't remember what happened that night and then through the interrogation and the manipulation and coercion of the police you know they they convince him that you know that he was dreaming the you know these these things that he's thinking about it was maybe in like a, it, this dream state, and this is what happened to the point where then he starts speaking as fact that, yeah, this is that's what happened. What you guys are telling me and feeding me, I think that's what happened. 
And and again, I mean, this is one of the most egregious uh, cases of police corruption and coercion I've seen. I mean, they literally falsified police reports and put police reports in front of Charles and say, well, this person saying that Ryan said that they did this and this person saying that they saw you there. None of this is true. You know, obviously, this jailhouse informant, they, they, they were also coerced. And I don't even know. I don't know if that part was brought up in trial, but it was definitely, you know, something that was discredited, the jailhouse informant. And then Dallas Mallory, who the police told Charles, he said he saw them near the crime scene. You know, when Ryan's conviction was overturned, he testified that he never even said that. I mean, the police are literally making up information to get Charles to say, well, if Dallas is saying I was there, well, if Ryan's confessing to it, we must have done it. Right. And that's, you know, this is what we see in a lot. You know, there's always people struggle with understanding that false confessions happen. And, and, and you have done a, a good job of educating your audience. My audience is very well aware of this. But, you know, as you as I've stated many times, you stated on your show, you know, that 25 percent of DNA proven wrongful convictions in 25% of those, the person gave incriminating statements or, or, or straight up confessed to something that they absolutely didn't do. So it, it happens, and this is how it happens. You take a 19-year-old kid. They said it was a non-custodial interview, so they never read him his rights. They never told him he could have a lawyer because, you know, technically he could get up and walk away at any time, which is bullshit as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned because no 19-year-old kid is going to tell the police, you know what, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. But so they, they don't read him as rights. He has no attorney there and they are lying to him, which sadly, because the Supreme Court has ruled that, that he is a, the police are allowed to do that. And in lying to him, they tell him that people say they saw you there and which, you know, he's already in a very vulnerable state because he doesn't know if he was there or not. They say, oh, mm-hmm. well, these people say they saw you there and they, they start pushing further and saying that Ryan is saying you did it. And then they start threatening him with the death penalty that, you know, whoever, whichever one of you confesses to this fir- to this first is not going to or is going to have the lighter sentence. You could be put to death. And they, they just keep leaning on him and leaning on him and leaning on him until finally he breaks and just tells them what, what they, what they want to hear. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Exactly. I mean, the death penalty was a huge part of it. You can hear in the, in the interview, the interrogation. I mean, they are screaming at him. They said, your hind end is on the chopping block, screaming at him, at Charles, at a kid, that if he doesn't confess, he's getting the death penalty. I mean, it is it is really disturbing, especially, you know, he, he's he broke over 
that magical number that says that you don't need parents anymore. You know, you know, he was 17 when the crime was committed. And then he's 19 when he's, oh, you're 19. You're an adult now. So there's no parents. There's no one there advising him or trying to help him to at least maintain his truth. And, and it's, yep. it's, it's a textbook case listening to the interrogation of how you, you lead somebody into a wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out, you know, for those that are, are maybe in doubt, can you talk a little bit about the physical evidence from the crime scene and, and how much of it linked back to, because there was significant amounts of physical evidence. There's a ton of physical evidence. There is blood. There's fingerprints. There's a, there's a bloody palm print. There is a strand of bloody hair. None of this matches Charles or Ryan or Kent Heitholt. This is all DNA that matches the killer. And it is not Charles or Ryan or Kent Heitholt. So whoever this matches, this bloody hair, this palm print, these fingerprints, is very likely the killer. And the police knew this. The prosecutor knew this. The police knew that none of this matched. And yet still, they go ahead with this, with this trial and this conviction. Why do you think that is? I'm always, I'm always curious what people, what your thoughts are. And I'm always curious myself, like, in a case like this where there is the obvious wrongful conviction, where, it, where you, it's very easy to look at this case and know that the police and the prosecutors know that this is not, these are not the people who killed Kent Heitholt. And they continue pursuing the conviction anyway. Why do you think that is? So, so this one, I, actually, it's been, pre- it's been proven why this one is. Um, it's because the prosecutor at the time wanted to close it and he was going to get a judge spot. He's a judge now. So this was his, you know, golden crown of a case to get this judgeship. Um, so he was like, you know, what, we got to close this. We're going to close it. I'm going to get this conviction. And now I'm a judge. Um, and that's, that's pretty much what happened in this case. Kevin Crane is now a judge. This prosecutor who, you know, witnesses, we can get back to the janitors. Jerry Trump, he was the janitor who called in the 911 report of seeing two guys at, you know, the original trial. He said that he saw Ryan and Charles. Well, he later recants that and says that he was forced to lie by Prosecutor Crane. He testified to this when Ryan's case was overturned. He was forced to lie. One of the main witnesses says, I was forced to lie. He was facing, he had a, some child, you know, some weird child sex pedophile. He was on probation for something like that. And they said, listen, we'll lessen your sentence if you testify. So, I mean, that's, you know, you again, you know all about jailhouse informants. He, he right. was on probation. He wasn't necessarily in jail, but they said like, hey, you say what we need you to say. We'll lessen, lessen your probation time. I mean, this man <laughs> crying on the sand, the prosecutor forced me to lie. And what is so disturbing in, in a broader picture of, you know, we know what was done wrong to Ryan and Charles, but then you look at the, the broader picture. Well, they didn't do it. There were, there, there's two, likely two very dangerous people out there that murdered this man that were, that continue to walk free and who knows what they've done since then. And then, exactly. and, and even these, these deals that are cut, I don't know what that man's charges were. But if it, if it involves the endangerment or sexual abuse of a child, he's a dangerous person as well. It's like, well, we'll let you be free sooner so that we can put these two innocent people in, in prison. It's just, it's just maddening that 
the sociopathy of yep. some of these prosecutors that are just so caught up in their own personal gain that they have no regard for the innocent people they're putting in prison. And they have no regard for the innocent people they're putting in danger by leaving the dangerous people out of prison. Yep. And this one is such a clear case of that. They There was Brady violations. The other janitor looked at a lineup and she clearly saw the perpetrators and she specifically said it is not Ryan Ferguson or Charles Erickson. That was never given to the defense. You know, that's exculpatory. She was never asked to testify. Her name's Shana Ornt. She, you know, we have her statement in, in my episode. You know, she comes out and says, I told the prosecution it was not them. I saw who did it. It was not them. So, I mean, this is just they knew from the beginning they had the wrong people and they just wanted to close this case. They have a vulnerable kid who's kind of confessed to it. And that's all they needed. And, you know, that's why I was so drawn to this case, because everyone knows Ryan. Everyone knows Ryan's out. It's a wonderful victory. But there's this other person who's still in there who, you know, to so many people was less sympathetic because he was this crazy guy that put Ryan in prison. He's not a crazy guy. He was a troubled kid who was taken advantage of by the system. So what's happening with him now? Because that, that, that last bit, the Brady violation, that was another huge revelation when, you know, it wasn't just they made me lie and say it was them. But this particular witness said they did see who did it. They know what those people look like. They know it wasn't Ryan and Charles. And, and that was kept from the defense. But also, they never, they was never pursued the actual people who did it. Mm-hmm. So, is, is that Brady violation going to have any effect on the, the the case that's being worked on right now for Charles? And do you know what the future looks like for Charles? Does he still have attorneys working on this case? Are they still trying to get him out? And are his lawyers confident that they'll succeed in doing that? Yeah. So Charles's current lawyer. You know, he's had a go with it with lawyers, too. There was a lot of conflicts of interest with Ryan, then getting on the Innocence Project. I mean, it's been really, really hard for Charles. And again, you know, you know, when people wonder why he's still in there, I mean, not only ha- has it been a hard go because he confessed, but um, he didn't even understand that he had nothing to do with this until a few years ago. It fully, you know, dawned on him when he started realizing that all of these police reports were faked that the police lied about them, lied about all these witnesses. It really took him a minute. And he explained this to me, you know, to realize he really wasn't there and he really was innocent. And Ryan's his alibi. Ryan said, I dropped Charles off at home around 130. Like, there's no way he went and killed someone at two and I wasn't there. And that's been proven. Mm-hmm. So Charles now has a new lawyer, Landon Magnuson. Landon is amazing. Um, He's been so helpful and he has full confidence in Charles. I mean, Landon heard about Charles's case. You know, he grew up in the area and he wasn't even living in the state at the time. And when he heard about his case, he was so compelled to help that he's been with him really ever since. And, you know, the Brady violation, they've already filed that as an appeal and it was denied. So I don't I don't think the Brady violation is going to have much to do with it anymore. But they currently have a writ for habeas corpus in front of the Missouri Supreme Court for his actual innocence, saying that his constitutional rights were violated. And, you know, based on everything we've listed, there's a million things that were violated. So that's what they're kind of banking on right now. And, you know, Ryan just got his settlement. Ryan got about $10 million from the state for his wrongful conviction. So, you know, there's a lot happening in this case still. 
And, you know, we're just waiting to hear back from this from this filing in July on, you know, what the courts are going to rule. Well, I hope that works out for him. I mean, what is, it, it, it's so sad to know that the two guys convicted of the same thing, that one is out and free and got a $10 million settlement, which in my opinion, that isn't even enough for mm-hmm. losing 10 years of his life and, 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 mm-hmm. and for intentional misconduct to, to put him in prison like that. And then the other then the other guy is still sitting in prison. And it, it is a bit more difficult legal challenge because he pled guilty and he confessed. And that that does make it more difficult. But at some point, someone's got to inject some common sense into that system and get him out of there. I, I test, test the DNA, you know, and that's what we always right. see is is there is DNA to be tested and, you know, people to find who did this. That's what I just think is so incredible when these prosecutors just appeal and appeal and appeal the the person who's convicted appeals i mean they fight these and and they're just doing so much more hurt and you're costing the state so much more money like if you want to put aside innocent lives i mean fiscally it's a real detriment to the state it's just so disturbing on so many levels and getting to know charles i mean i, I consider charles a friend now he is such a wonderful person he's a misunderstood person and I just want people to know, you know, he's not crazy. He was taken advantage of and he's a great guy. You know, he he rehabilitates dogs in prison. He speaks out about injustices he sees in prison as a white guy. He uses his voice to talk about, you know, the harms he sees being done to people of color in prison. He is just an amazing person who who does not deserve to be there. Well, I, I appreciate the work you've done and, and really stepping out to tell his story outside of of just Ryan's story which is which is intriguing enough is there is there anywhere our listeners can go to help the cause to help work towards getting Charles out of prison yes so there is a website freecharleserickson.org you can go there there's petitions i mean you can write the Missouri governor which i also have um you can write Charles and just let him know that you care and ask him you know what what you can do to help I really think writing the people in Missouri and letting them know like, hey, Ryan's out. This guy is still in. Don't forget about him. Do the right thing. He has petitions in front of the court right now is really, really helpful to do. Yeah. So definitely, if you're interested in this case, take the time to take some steps. Let's try to help keep the ball rolling and and get it rolling more in Charles's favor. And uh, Maggie, before I let you go, uh, can you give the, the listeners maybe a, a little a short list of, of some cases you've covered on Unjust and Unsolved and, and maybe some hot ones you got coming up? So, you know, one of the first cases that we covered on the show, which while we were reporting it was Ronnie Long. I know you know that case. He, mm-hmm. you know, was literally released from prison after 44 years, two days before our episode dropped. So that one's really exciting. We, of course, cover Jamie Snow. We have you on as a guest. That case is insane. Rosa Jimenez, she's in Texas. She's a young mom who has been there for decades. She's dying of stage four kidney failure. Um, Five judges have ruled to release her and the state will still not release her even though she's dying. It's heartbreaking. That's a must listen. And then, you know, one of the cases that we just put out is Darrell Ewing, who has huge rappers like 42 Doug and Meek Mills behind him because his case is also just so egregious and really shows an insane pattern of corruption in Detroit. So, I mean, these are all ones that just off the top of my head stick out to me um, that people should listen to. 
awesome. And I think people should check out their, your entire library. Again, it's really well done. Maggie, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show and, and share Charles' story with our listeners. Thank you for caring about Charles' story, and thanks for having me on. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.